You're listening to another episode of the Sacred Changemakers podcast. My name is Jane Worlow, and I'm so grateful that you're here with us today. This podcast is about change and transformation, but not just any old change. We believe in change for good, which lies at the intersection of three things, personal, professional, and social transformation. So come with us on a journey as we go behind the scenes with people who are making a real difference in our world. Each episode, we'll be diving deeply into topics that keep you inspired and at your best. Sometimes we'll be interviewing thought leaders, sharing tools and resources, and sometimes we'll be leading deep dive conversations, tackling the challenging issues of our times. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to ask a favor. Would you please go to iTunes or whatever app you're listening to, subscribe and leave a rating and review? It would really help us out. It helps us to share our messages with as many people as we can, and it helps our guests also get their messages out to more people. So thank you. Now, the title of today's episode is Doing Sacred Work in Non-Sacred Places. And our guest on the podcast this week is Akim Novak. Akim is a business thinker, C-suite coach, mastermind convener, TEDx speaker, and the author of three books on personal presence. He helps CEOs and C-suite executives in Fortune 500 companies around the world to show up with relaxed authority and amplify their personal influence. A serial entrepreneur, his work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Fast Company, Entrepreneur, USA Today, and on NPR and NBC. Welcome, Ahim. Hello, Jane. Hey, well, I am so thrilled to have you with us on the podcast today because you are such a great friend and colleague of mine, and we have had some great conversations over the years, Akim. We have, yes. <laughs> so I'm expecting today to be no different, okay? So I know we have a lot of listeners listening in, so I'd love to ask you if you can just give us a little sense, a few insights maybe, of the real-life human that lies behind your professional bio. Uh, I, uh, I'm an adventurer and a risk-taker, and, uh, and I didn't... I didn't arrive to that maybe naturally, just life worked out that way. But if I give you some touch points, um, when I was in my mid thirties, I, I had a career in New York as a professional theater director and acting coach. And uh, I was doing well, but I was, this was the late eighties. Then I, I was diagnosed with HIV and I've been healthy the entire time. Uh, so this is not a story about that, but I received some <laughs> some guidance <laughs> to leave that life behind. And where I ended up is moving to a small island in the Caribbean, Tobago, and lived there for a year and become a windsurfer. And, and I learned a lot from that experience and maybe let this stand uh, as a metaphor for other risks we take. One of the most profound experiences around that was... Uh, calling my mother in Germany and telling her that I was giving up a stable career in New York to, lit, to move to Tobago. And I have a very traditional German mother and I had dreaded the phone call. And uh, 
I, I said to mom on the phone, I said, I'm giving up my work with the creative arts team. That was the company where I was artistic director. And she said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to move to Tobago. Then she asked, what are you going to do there? And I said, nothing. And there was a pause. And she said, well, you know what's best for you, which I had not expected. And as saying this in, in terms of the honoring my mother, who's 95 now, in a senior residence in Germany in the middle of coronavirus, mm -hmm. and she is healthy and safe. Everybody in her place is safe. And uh, so that's an example of the different risks where, where we do stuff we, we never thought we would do. And by doing it, it leads us to the, uh, the next thing we're going to do that we never thought we would do. And, and part of having sacred or divine experiences is by taking those risks and uh, just walking into the unknown. So I'll stop there. <laughs> I didn't know that about you. I yeah. didn't know you'd been in Tobago for a year windsurfing. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. So you said there that you learned a lot from that experience. What did you learn? Let me talk about how I made the decision. And, and mm. this is maybe for all of us, how do we make decisions in our lives? I, I was spending six weeks in a retreat center in Arizona in 1988. And uh, the woman who ran the center, but there's a group of, group of us, she said she was doing these psychological exercises. I never really looked at myself. And at some point she said, you are the most stubborn group of people I have ever met. <laughs> and she did an exercise where she put all of us in a room. We had to lie on a cot. We were blindfolded. We were not allowed to move and get up. And uh, if we had to go to the bathroom, we could raise our hand and somebody would walk us to the bathroom. And three times a day, somebody would not tap on the shoulder and give us, bring us some food. So this was, this was a way of getting through all of our mm -hmm. control mechanisms. And it was about totally surrendering. And after having had an intense life recalls, it was like, like a movie in my brain, um, I kept hearing a voice that says, you need to write, you need to write, you need to write. It was literally, it was a literal voice. And I kept seeing a, a little white house on an island. And for me, the little white house was, was not some Freudian metaphor. It was a real house. And I don't need to tell the story, but six months later, I was living in a white house on an island overlooking the Atlantic. And the whole only thing was, is I trusted those messages and I listened, you know, and if we want to talk about sacred or divine guidance, because right. we block this all the time. <laughs> and, and before that, I didn't even know where the heck Tobago was on the map, right. but, but, uh, and what I learned and part of the journey is, you know this because we're both international souls and we live in the country mm -hmm. where we weren't born. And I didn't realize until I, after I left in Tobago because I lived in a village where I was an outsider. You know, it was mostly mm -hmm. black folk. And I realized in hindsight that I was exercising like an exorcism, the part of me that was recreating situations where I felt like a foreigner. And I, I, so there's a sexy surface story. I'm windsurfing. I fly back and forth to Trinidad. But the cycle, and at some point, once I got that, I couldn't wait to get out of Tobago. Like I had learned my lesson. Mm. 
And the gift of that experience is that there literally, there isn't a single moment in my life since then where I feel like I don't belong where I am, regardless of what the setting is. Mm -hmm. And that created a lot of freedom of possibility that had been blocked up to that point. Right. So this feels like a very like sacred experience that took you there. So tell me about your definition of sacred. What is that? What does that mean to you? For me, sacred starts within, which is I have a conscious connection and experience of the divine. Mm -hmm. It's not a cognitive experience. It's an energetic experience. And I know that you know what I'm talking about. And that my life, that my work going forward is driven and motivate, motivated by this knowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and which means work changes because I'm connected to it. I invite others to connect to it. And I'm able to connect to that part of the other person. But I, I, we cannot connect it deeply if those channels aren't open within us. So at some point I had experiences where that was open and then the work we do wherever we are, whatever the context is, comes from a different place, which is a place of, I'm gonna say divinity, uh, but it's a place of, I know that in the mo- that you and I right now, we're separate humans, but spiritually we are one. Mm. And that's the nature of our conversation. Mm. So how did, how has the, your relationship with the sacred led you to the work that you're doing today? I, there is no conscious linear path. Right. So, and it's very interesting. I'll I'll do some background. I've done a lot of work in the past that many people would immediately describe as sacred work. For example, I spent much of the 90s. um, I was trained, I went through two-year training to deliver a program called the AIDS Mastery. So I was working with people who had HIV or AIDS and their loved ones who uh, to look at how do we live impassioned lives while our body is deteriorating, mm. which is obviously a powerful question in the midst of COVID-19. Right, right? Right. Um, and I, I did that in communities all over North America, or I, I, um, I did some work for an organization called Seeds of Peace, which brought together teenagers, from from the Middle East, from Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Egypt, to have conversations across enemy lines. And the idea was that we have these conversations so we create future leaders who have a relationship with the enemy. So this has all been really, really cool work. What I'd like to add, however, um, my connection to my own divinity was still just awakening. So ironically now, I work in these big global Fortune 500 companies. Like I, and when I mention this to people, people can't possibly imagine that that could be divine work because many (laughs) stories are, well, these companies are just scumbags who make a lot of profit and they take advantage of the planet. And the gift of the work I get to do there one-on-one is that I, by supporting people who are really successful, which is what I do, is the work is not around being more successful. The work is around more deeply knowing who we are, 
showing up from that place and connecting from that place with others and creating stuff from there. So that's beautiful work happening in very traditional environments. Mm. And I love that you took us back to the 90s, -hmm. kind of where it sounds like it all began in a way. Yes. And our title for today, Doing Sacred Work in Non-Sacred Places, you know, and I can, I can feel into, lean into what that means today in your career, but I can also see the thread going back to living an impassioned life when your body's deteriorating. Right. Because you wouldn't necessarily think of that kind of a body as a, maybe a sacred body, mm-hmm. but there you are having the conversation and bringing people into it. I love that. I hear I really do. And I'd love to know, like, so one of the things that some of the listeners might be thinking as they hear you talking about that is like, really, is there really a place for the sacred in corporate life? There's a place for the sacred in, in every encounter and everything we do. That's where it starts from within, even though I mentioned my, not, not my work in the 90s, which uh, was really cool social cause work but it wasn't always animated Mm. by my connection to the divine within myself. And just to give you other examples, like I live in Hollywood, Florida, which is a city I love. I'm involved in some community activism. So I'm part of a little civic association in my little neighborhood, Parkside, which is a hotly contested neighborhood around social development. So my two friends, Chris uh, Chris and Ken and I, We're on the board of this little civic association and we lobby for stuff that we want. And uh, we're passionate about what we want our neighborhood to look like. And that work we do together is completely sacred work. It's about our community, the future of the community. And the the second layer of it that that strikes me, and I don't get paid for this, this is volunteer work, (laughs) is that I, I love Chris and Ken, and I love the three of us together. And we, we celebrate our successes, little stuff like getting zoning changed around development or parking. That may sound very trivial, but that is sacred work. It's about the well-being of a community and a city. Uh, but it, it, mean, it, it, it takes us seeing it in that manner, if that makes sense. Mm. So what is the difference, like going and being on this little civic, like, uh, I can't remember what you said it was. Civic association. (laughs) Thank you. The civic association. They have those in Columbus, Ohio, too. (laughs) I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. Perhaps I should step out a bit more. Well, perhaps not right now. But um, yeah, so being there and doing the role that maybe you volunteered for, maybe they asked you to do. Yeah. And then bringing sacred into it. What's the difference there, Akim? I'd love to get an understanding of that. Um, I think in the past, because I, I'm, I'm like you, I'm a very accomplished person. I've done lots of cool things all over the world. But I'm not sure that I always celebrated what I was doing in the moment. Mm. You know, it becomes we get busy in the act of doing good stuff Mm. because I made some choices in my life to simplify what I do, the work I do with Ken and Chris and the civic association. (laughs) I can tell you 
in the moment. I love being with them. I'm aware of how cool the work is we're doing. And I celebrate them and us and the city in the moment. And one of the big ironies is, you know, I'm politically on the progressive side on politics. Both of them, you know, are hardcore conservatives. You know, so it's, and when I when I first found out that I'm like, holy shit, like I'm <laughs> I'm lobbying with these two, but I really love Ken and Chris, and I love this work that we get to do together. So, and and it, but it's 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 a conscious knowing of that, um, and and that relates to the work I do in big corporations as well. Mm. And it sounds to me an awful lot like presence in a way. Yeah. It is. It sounds like that because you just described there something like putting yourself and volunteering to be in a situation that would fill some people with horror, like because the people that they're they're joining with, they're collaborating with are so very different in view to themselves. So how does presence really help you like be okay with that? Like, can you give any insights for other people that might be listening and finding themselves maybe in a similar situation, but are afraid of the differences, maybe? That's a wonderful question to which I, I don't think I have a great answer. I think there are people who I would strongly disagree with on stuff, and, and I wouldn't want to collaborate with them as right. well. So let me be honest. But I think this is what the teaching opportunity has been with me. You know, that we we are aligned, and maybe this is how it relates to sacred work, is Ken and Chris and I, even though in parts of our lives we're very uh, different, we're aligned around a purpose that matters to us, which is the future of the little neighborhood that we love. And that's more important than all the other things we don't agree on. Right. And we, the other part is I would say, we really have fun lobbying for stuff, and we celebrate our little wins. And so it's just such a, such a joy to be a civic lobbyist with two people, you know, and celebrate that. But if I relate this to my, my, my work in huge global corporations, um, the common thread there is I, I help leaders who are already very successful drop into being more human, mm -hmm. embracing that humanity within them having the courage to reveal more of it and leading their people from that place, which allows their people to show more of their humanity as well. And that then ripples into all sorts of other places. And, and, and to me, that is very sacred work. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if I just may add one thing, because we're both coaches <laughs> um, and there are all sorts of, coaching tips and techniques and tricks and whatever. And uh, we both have been coaching for a long time, but where I have landed is um, my relationship with a powerful client and the hour that we're together is we're modeling for each other what a relationship with another human could be and where it can go. By creating that space one-on-one, -on -one, I, am, I am showing her or him how to do it in other places. And that's, that's sacred. Yeah, I really get that. And I, I love that you're speaking to that because that embodiment, you know, I think is, is often 
missing for a lot of business mm-hmm. leaders. Yeah. Like they go on a leadership development retreat or mm-hmm. something, they learn something in their head, they do some executive education, and then they think they know. And I can't even remember who said that great quote that you, you don't know until you actually embody and live yeah. into and yeah. become with something. And so I'd love to um, ask you a little bit more about that, the embodiment and modeling. Um, is there any, if somebody's listening and they're thinking, okay, uh, right, so, you know, I want to bring the sacred into my work. Do you have any sense of, especially if they're in a workplace that maybe they feel there's no space for that in their Maybe it's not a sacred place that they think of when they think about their work. Is there any like advice or maybe tips and tricks? I don't know, Akin, that you could share with them about how to still find that sacred within as they go to work, or is it not possible? I don't know. As a coach, I'm a I'm a great believer in simple experimentation, mm. uh, and the experimentation is how much of that part of me um, do I have the courage to reveal? Uh, not because I want to proselyze, proselyze, not because I want to change you, no, but it's just part of, like to give you a little, like, a little example, I, I remember um, I, I, I spent many, 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 many times in, in corporate business dinners and you sit at a table for three hours or so with sometimes with people who will you will never see again, and I remember um, sometimes conversation drift towards golf, which I'm completely uninterested in, and then I go like, shoot, uh, I can either be silent or I can contribute in a different way, and I've learned that when when they, when they get stuck on golf, the common denominator is sport. So I talk about sport that I like, swimming. <laughs> and that can open a conversation. But I, sometimes my conversation, I'm with very religious folk who talk about going to church. And, I, and I'm not a Christian. I don't go to Christian churches. But I spent over 25 years uh, in, in Hindu temples, chanting in Sanskrit and doing all that stuff. And common wisdom is that you don't get into politics and religion at these meetings. But I said, well, why the heck not? Again, just saying, this is what I do. And that has always been the most beautiful thing when I allow myself to say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when I talk about that, I, we, I give everyone permission to more openly talk about their, their connection to the divine, whether it's Christian or whatever, mm-hmm. without trying to change you in any kind of way. Uh, so those are the little risks. Now, if, like, for example, on my... You asked me for the interview, do you, <laughs> did you want me to show your LinkedIn profile? And I said, oh, I don't really right. care. But I intentionally start my LinkedIn narrative with a quote from Rumi, uh, the poet Rumi, about listening to the silence within. Mm. And that's an intentional signal to anybody who wants to work with me that, so that's my first thing I say in my narrative. Mm. And, and if, if you also like Rumi, we're going to have a connection. And, and I often get hired because I, people say, I wanted you as a coach because I knew you were spiritual. Mm-hmm. And I'd already opened that door, you know. Um, and maybe people who don't know Rumi will go like, what is this shit? Okay, let me ble- read on. <laughs> they, might want, they might hire me for other reasons. And that's totally fine. But I, I'm talking about the little 
the little ways in which we, we reveal that part of ourselves and invite the other person to, um, to go there as well. Mm. And I think you're bringing up a really important point here that, you know, a lot of us struggle with in life and careers and business, this idea of, you know, do we, is there really space for us to be authentic or should we be the person that is expected in this environment? Like, should we show up, you know, according to the maybe sometimes unspoken rules, but they're still there and we're, we're very viscerally aware of them in our yeah. culture. And they're kind of drummed into us from a very young age as well. And yet here you are talking about being yourself, giving the people that you're like in relationship with in a certain context, the permission to be themselves also. So what I'm wondering about is, because there's a few underlying assumptions here to what you're talking about, and I'd love to kind of dig in a little deeper because you've talked about bringing the humanity back into corporate life, into business life. You've also talked about giving people permission to be themselves, authentically themselves. And I just wonder, you know, what is your hope or vision for business? Because we're right now in COVID-19, everything is shifting. And I'd love to get a sense of what you hope for the future from this. Part of the insanity of business or traditional businesses that always shocks me is that there's an executive team somewhere of seven people who make a lot of strategic decisions. Uh, then we have a strategy around cascading the messages down, right. you know, and then we're surprised that nobody is excited. <laughs> 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 well, guess what? You have, you have, if, if you're, if, if you're a, company with 4 million employees, you have silenced uh, 3,993 people right. and because you haven't listened to them. Right. So the future, and in a way, this is what I do in my work, is we, we go into, so how do we really listen to others and make decisions together rather than everything being an exercise around, let me align you around what I know we need to do. Mm -hmm. So the opening up of conversation of listening so there are many less traditional business approaches self-management is one of them and 100 percent self-management will not work in every environment but where basically you know in a self-management culture you have strong entrepreneurial clusters who are um, self-managed and make decisions on their own or, you know, you know, we have a mutual friend named Suzanne Daigle, who's an open space, um, well, she's my open space guru, which is really a methodology for um, putting a bunch of people in a room together. And uh, you may have a topic of what you want to talk about, but the agenda and themes are generated by the people in that room, not by a planning committee of four people, then everybody has to force what they think we should talk about. And obviously, much richer conversations happen, more voices are heard, and the outcomes that come out of an open space conversation tend to be a lot more galvanizing than strategic decisions by a small group of people that, that nobody wants to execute. Mm. 
So do you see things changing? There are examples all over the world where things are, but I think old hierarchy and structures will, will hold on really, really tight. Um, so I, I, the realist in me says definitely not fast enough. Mm. And I think if I take a broad spiritual perspective, then I think systems only change when it's really clear that what's happening isn't working anymore, like when they have to. Mm. Um, but I believe, and there are many examples in huge corporate structures, for example, where there is the corporate playground, and then there are these individual units where somebody is a visionary leader, and she or he has an idea of what, this is what in my little universe I want it to feel like. And this is how we're going to do work together. And this is how we're going to create and produce. Uh, and then people sit, well, often go like, shit, like, what are they doing there? You know, and, and I, I think we have the power to create within the spheres where we do have impact and influence. Hmm. Yeah. And one of the things we talk about as sacred change makers is the ability that we all have to find the sacred within and yeah. then use that as energy for change and transformation. Yeah. So, and I believe that, and I believe we're all being called right now. I think this is actually a very sacred time on earth. And I just wondered what you make of this time that we're all living through right now. It's an interesting day to, to record this conversation because I, I've been involved in my, in my own journey. I have not been feeling well. I've had symptoms. I just got the COVID-19 test. I found out this morning that I'm negative, for which I'm grateful. Uh, but I've also learned like in this journey we're all going through as a planet, I think we, there are the, the disparities of the experience and possibility are, there are people who are financially very comfortable and there are people who are worried about money um, and they have very different experiences. And then there are people who are physically healthy and people who have not been. And uh, I've had a bunch of symptoms. I didn't have all of them, I'm fine. But when we deal with our physical health, uh, my mind is not on big spiritual transformation. My mind is on like, shit, I don't feel really good today. And uh, what's going on? And, and I, I feel really good right now. Um, I mean, what's already happening, and it feels like a cliche to say it, is a deeper sense of global community um, all over the world because we're we're forced to be more virtual. Like three hours ago, I was on a one-hour phone call with, um, originated by business entrepreneurs in Berlin. But in, in in that call, there were people from the south of France. There were people from Greece. There was somebody from Jaipur, India, and uh, and there was a tangible sense that we have our individual experience but it's collective and, and the answers ideally need to be collective. Mm. 
But our job is to, uh, I'm so aware of how, how just ridiculous the response in the United States is to the situation, mm. is to, to hold the space for visionary leaders that have a global perspective for humanity. Like e even the, I understand why we track counts of how many, how many people died in this country, how many people died in that country. But that artificial division, these are, we're human brothers and sisters. Yeah. You know, the fact that we still compare, well, how many died in Italy? How many died in Spain? How many are dying in Florida? How many, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I understand why we do it, but it's also insane. So hopefully if five years from now, we are as concerned about what happened in another country because there are, we're all part of the same spirit and that that leads to action that supports that. Um, if I can just give you an example, because this conversation is recent, um, you know, I have very mixed feelings about Germany, the country I was born and I intentionally, I choose to not live there, <laughs> but I'm very proud of how German leadership and the German people are maneuvering through this crisis. And on the deepest level, the, Germany has more hospital resources than they need. So they, they offer their, their hospital beds and ventilators to people from Spain and people from Italy and people from France. And that's the future. That's the future. You know, even the small gesture when the, the governor of Oregon said, here, I have 140 ventilators. I'll give it to Andrew Cuomo in New York. That's the future. And our government right now is obviously modeling everything is the opposite, which is about division. And the, the future is this in, in, in every sense. And if, if our current experience can lead us to more of that, um, like for example, example, there's a woman in South Florida, her name is Shelly. Um, she started an, an, an action called uh, Pandemic of Love. And she just started it where she says, I, I'm matching families in need with families that want to help. So she's matched 15,000 people, families all over the world mm -hmm. to help each other. Now that's sacred work mm -hmm. and that's the future. And I think there are many examples like that. I, I sometimes get tired of just because our media wants to glorify all of that to, to make us feel better. Right. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I value that, that impetus, you know, yeah. and that is the future and the hope for me. Yeah. Yeah, and I really hear that because, you know, you used a term that I love, and if I'm really honest, I long for which is this acknowledgement really and the honoring of the fact that we're all global humans. Yeah. We're all in this together, the interconnectivity. I mean, I don't think anybody can deny that we're not all interconnected now, but you know, I just wonder, I still have had conversations with executives who are waiting to go back to normal. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and it just makes me giggle because I just think I really don't think there's any going back. And then yeah. I and then I'll talk to other people and sometimes they think, well, maybe that's just like hopeful idealism. Um, but I'm hopeful that there are real signs that people are opening up. I almost feel like people are being broken open. Some of the leaders that 
weren't ready to think in different ways or hold different perspectives and mm-hmm. now starting to talk in different ways with me about you know that the way that they're thinking about the future and this idea of bringing humanity back but it like you said it's small kind of piecemeal steps well i i remember I have great admiration for Eric Garcetti, who's the mayor of Los Angeles. Mm. And I remember the day that he was really shutting down the city and it looked like things were getting really bad and he gave a press conference. He said, it's okay to cry, it's okay to be angry, and it's okay to hope. Mm. And I loved that. Our American president, who who, uh, is constantly doing what we call fake cheerleading and denying reality. Mm-hmm. And somebody like Eric Garcetti, those three words mean it's okay to be human. Yeah. Because even in the spiritual work in a world in which I travel, there are so ma- many narratives around uh, wanting to negate fear. Yeah. Fear is bad. You're not spiritually evolved enough. There's a suppression of certain emotions that are uncomfortable. And what Garcetti said, all of it is okay. And be human and acknowledge that. And from that point on, together we will move forward. I love that. Because that, to me, does feel sacred. Because you gave us a lovely definition of what it means to you at the beginning. And, you know, for anybody listening, if, you know, there may be people listening that don't have a relationship to the word sacred because perhaps they think that that's in the religious space. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder if you could speak to that in some way, like, you know, if somebody's listening, they don't have a sense of what it might be. How can they kind of connect to that or form a connection to something that would feel maybe sacred? I don't know. The most common example that's rightfully offered all the time is, uh, is our connection to nature. Yeah. You know, and I, I think of a moment since I talked about Tobago, and this is a very German story. This probably wouldn't happen in an American story, but my mom and dad were visiting me. They were actually driving me crazy, but I don't need to tell that story now. <laughs> but we, we drove to a far end of the island to a remote beach called Englishman's Bay, and there was nobody there. It was just mom and dad and me and the Jeep I had rented. And we got out of the Jeep, and all three of us got naked. And seeing my mom and dad naked is not a pretty sight. I just need to say that. <laughs> but there was that moment where mom was lounging on the beach. Dad and I were running to the ocean. And to me, that was a stripping away of mm. all of the social roles we play, being in a primal environment. And that was a soul divine moment. And I've had a few others with my parents. So, but it happened in powerful nature. Mm. And and I, I remember the first time I, I stood on the ledge of Grand Canyon and looked down. And you can't help but be just completely yeah. overwhelmed and moved by the awe and beauty of that. Mm. And that's, I think, a glimpse of what the divine can feel like. And if we can translate the possibility of that experience into the moments we have with others and create from that place. Some cool stuff can happen. Yeah, 
I just just feeling into the energy around that and thinking, gosh, that feels really magic. Because as you was talking, I was just really struck by this idea that we humans, we're quite strange creatures in a way. We're the only people that can decide not to be ourselves. Because like you go out into yeah. nature, the bird's just the bird. It doesn't suddenly decide it wants to be a dog one day, <laughs> right? It's just doing oh. bird-like things. But here we are as humans trying to shape ourselves to fit different contexts and different yeah. roles and different expectations. So... Well, I, I want to I want to direct you to some research that uh, I, I know you will like and hopefully is meaningful to the listeners yeah. at, at MIT in Boston. And I, I'm always weary about mentioning American research because it's often culturally biased. Right. But there's a wonderful guy named Alex Pentland. His, his, his nickname is Sandy Pentland. And he did some research um, with five entrepreneurs who... Uh, had to do a pitch in front of a group of venture capitalists and only um, one of them was going to be given the money. And four days before this pitch, which was on a Friday, he, he held a little cocktail party and he measured electronically their social signals. And I love the word he uses. He calls them honest signals. And honest signals are the signals that are that are uniquely human and different from animals, even though we try to control those signals. And by honest signals, he means stuff like, like how much we sweat, how close we get to people, how much we physically express with hands and body, how much we smile. And, and what got my attention, this research was published in Harvard Business Review. After that cocktail party, he said, I know who's going to win the pitch. He had no idea what they were going to talk about. He hadn't read their proposals and he correctly predicted who was going to win the pitch. And so the, the interview in Harvard Business wow. Review said, well, well, how did you know? Remember, this was all based on, on, on the uniquely human things that we try to control. And he said, personal energy. Really? It, all, it always wins out. And he said, and he correctly predicted, he said, this person's going to win the pitch regardless of all the other stuff. Wow. And did they say anything specific about the energy? Was it about openness or authenticity or? I'm sure that I'm sure they did, but I don't <laughs> I'll have remember. To go and have a look. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's but but incredible. if anybody's interested, Alex Pentland, MIT Press actually published a book, a little booklet called Honest right. Signals. And I, th I think that I love the word yeah. honest signals because people often talk about body language. Yes. And body language gets controlled and manipulated. And honest right. signal is the stuff that we don't manipulate, that we send right. out. Right. And, you know, as, and as you're talking there, I'm just thinking, gosh, how the world would be different if we weren't taught at such a young age to kind of dampen down some of those honest signals or change them or transform them to fit the world in some way. What would life be like if we were all honest in that way? Interesting. I think there's probably pros and cons <laughs> to it. Yeah, I... Um... <laughs> Here's a story that, that hopefully is helpful because we all make, we, I think as adults, it behooves us to make choices about how we show up in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I always laugh when people say, people go on a job interview and, and, and they ask a friend and the friend says, uh, oh, just be yourself. 
And nobody wants you to be yourself in a job interview. They, they, want, you to, <laughs> they want you to bring your best self, right. right? Which is also a part of you. But so, so what is your best self? And uh, I spent a whole bunch of years, and I, I was brought up to be a, you know, my parents were in the German Foreign Service. So I, with my social role as a child was to make mom and dad look good in public. I understood that. I was a good little boy. I knew how to be charming. I knew how to be pleasant. And I spent a bunch of years in therapy, you know, I'm doing that. <laughs> what I learned, however, is that when I choose to be charming, it always works. But the different thing is, as a grown-up, it's a choice and it's not what defines me. But the charming part for me is a part of me that it's an expression of my joy of being with you, my delight in being with you, because hiding is usually not helpful and uh so being able to activate those parts of ourselves uh allows other people to activate that part that part within themselves and it again opens deeper doors and it's funny because I, I almost feel now like you're bringing us right back full circle to presence again mm -hmm. because to me that's an important way that you kind of get into a, a real relationship with yourself but also with the moment and the people around you in that moment you get present you get there but if we go back to where we started and we talked about the sacred and the deepest level of presence in my mind is being open to unexpected wisdom and acting from there and that was the gift of my experience in the Arizona desert that I got information I'd never gotten before. And I had the courage to act on it. So part of me, I think, being helpful in, in, in the world from a more, as much as I don't like the world, from a more authentic place, is to be very vigilant about the guidance. And ironically, this year, again, new guidance is emerging and I'm arranging my life accordingly, is... As you, as you have done when you decided to do Sacred Changemakers. That right. was based on emerging wisdom for you. Yes. And it just then takes the courage to listen and the courage to act accordingly. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, when you talk there about Sacred Changemakers, for me, one of the things that we talk about in our community is this um, continuum of, and it, it came from my personal experience, having a job, then having a career, then having a career with purpose, then having a business, then having a business with purpose, and now having a calling. Yeah. And that has changed everything for me. But as I listen to you talk, you've actually made something else kind of bubble up to the surface, which is this idea that we don't just have one calling. It's not just like one lifetime sacred calling, because if we learn to open and listen, there's always guidance for me anyway that's my experience it's continuous it's a continuous um, emergent unfolding guidance for me here's um and i think this is the power of having truthful conversations and this is a very specific i have there are several conversations that i can say in hindsight changed the course of my life mm -hmm. and the person had no idea that they were doing it so this was in 1991. I had just gotten a, my first job being a trainer for an international training company. We were 
catering to corporations. I come out of the arts and community organizing. And I was, this is my first week on the job. And I was watching a guy named Herminio watching and teach a course. And I was learning it from him. And the first night of this work, you know, we would take clients out for a drink at the bar. So I'm sitting at, at, at a bar in a hotel in Midtown Manhattan with a woman who I want to say she's, she seemed like an older woman at the time. She's younger than I am now. So, but, <laughs> but, uh, and she was the head of uh, human resources at a big, well-established Wall Street firm. And we were sitting there and she said, you know, she said, I have this philosophy in life that, that roughly every, every seven years, I need to do something completely different. She said, seven years ago, I left Paris to move to Manhattan and I feel another change coming up. Mm. And what that liberated in me, because I was questioning, is this the right thing I'm doing now? Right. And what I, what I went to, you know, this is what I'm being guided to do now. Right. <laughs> and I may be guided to do something different. And that led to, to a place of enjoyment rather than judgment. And, and that conversation was so powerfully life-changing, that little comment uh, that she would never remember that she said, you know. And it comes back to listening, which is also one of the things that we both share as coaches. But it sounds like it's also part of the work you do is inspiring people to listen at that deeper level. But I also want to relate it to you and me and how we listen to ourselves. Um, it's so easy to get caught up in narratives that are actually not authentic for us but we we internalize them and we think they're ours but they're actually not like in my industry you know which is yours as well the narrative is on scaling and getting bigger and bigger <laughs> and bigger and i realized and and i sold a really successful company and and the advice i was given was always really well intentioned people wanted me to get even bigger and I realized that if, if I have to talk about what, what my main driver is, it's intimacy and intimacy in the work I do and uh, being in places where, um, where I, I, can, I can do that. And, and, but also trusting this for our listeners that wherever you're guided to go, because that can still be the chatter of, but no, but to be really successful, it should look like this. Right. Or to be really successful, I should work for the United Nations. Or to be really successful, you know, I should run a social services agency. And to just be honest about part of getting older, saying is I'm entitled to do work. And I believe in being of service to the world. But I believe in being very honest with ourselves about stuff we want to do mm. and stuff we don't want to do. Even though we're skilled at it, even though people praise us for that stuff, but having the courage to say no. And then the universe will fill in the vacuum. Yes. Yeah. So, and as you're speaking there, I'm like, it makes perfect sense. Yes. And for me personally, that's sometimes a very difficult thing to do. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I just, again, you and I travel in the same world. You, you, you know, this to be just really banal, you know, we live in a world where unless you make at least a million dollars, you're a sucker, you know, 
and and we're bombarded by messages about like helping us to get to to million dollars faster yeah you yeah. know and and these fantasy that's sold is you can you can make all that money and work less you know at the same time and i love money and i like getting paid really well so i honor that but i realized like i i really don't need a million dollars to be happy yeah. And and just because I make a million dollars doesn't mean my work is any better. So Achim has his own mind about what comfortable revenue is um, and who I best want to serve and then pay attention to how that continuously emerges and changes. Like you've been very good at doing that in your life. I feel like every two, three years, Jane expresses <laughs> I <do>. differently. <laughs> I do that, completely. And that, and that might drive your husband crazy. But, it does. But, but I honor that about you because yeah. I know that you are listening to your guidance. Yes, and I do. And I follow where it takes me. Yeah. I really do. But I love what you're talking about there about the enough and the saying yes and the saying no, because I was listening this morning actually on the BBC World Service to um, uh, the city of Amsterdam are starting to look at what they're going to do to like reignite the economy mm. post COVID. Yeah. And they were talking about they've got an, uh, an economist in from Oxford University who she's Kate Roweth, and I've actually seen her TED talk. So I know what she's talking about. She talks about donut economics. And she says this is the only way forward for us going forward, not just this growth, growth, growth at any cost, but really having a top line, which is the center of the donut of knowing this is enough but also having the bottom line to make sure that everyone has a living wage so that we, we define the, the piece of the donut that goes around and say, that's enough. And then we're going to look after people at the bottom as well. So they never drop down into extreme poverty. And it's yeah. an interesting idea. Yeah. If, if I, I just want to selfishly build on that. I, I did a, <laughs> I, I, I gave a TEDx talk a couple of years ago called enough already. Oh, and, and the yeah. notion so unpe unpeeling the enoughness or the lack of enoughness, yeah. I think leads us to um, being of service from a purer place. Yeah. Because I think so much, so much of what we do unintentionally, it, it's never intentional, is to somehow prove ourselves and to the world that we are worthy. Mm. And once we let go of that shit, you know, then it actually gets really interesting. Yeah. Oh, I can vouch for that. Definitely. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So let me ask you a final question, Akim. Um, if there was something you hoped we'd get to today, something that you want to share with our listeners and we haven't got there, what might it be? What wisdom do you have? That's a word we haven't talked about. And this okay. is actually, uh, and, and it looks like I'm going to do another TEDx talk about it this year. So maybe a little preview. Uh, there's this wonderful entrepreneur, Jack Ma, you know, who is one of the most successful uh, entrepreneur in all of China. Yeah. And he, he regularly, he, he just let go a couple of years ago of running his business. But he, he was asked at the Davos Economic Forum two years ago in a panel about like, what, what are, what skills does the leader of the future need? Mm. And he talked about uh, IQ and EQ, but then he talked about LQ. And he, LQ is the ability to create moments of love. Mm. 
and I Googled it immediately and I found nothing. And I realized Jack Ma made this up, <laughs> but, uh, but I think the moment we hear it, you know, because love is, I think the deepest, most sacred experience that we have. Mm. And, and we can do lots of good work, but there is no love behind it. It's all ego driven. And if we can look at how we create moments of love, um, Dr. Barbara Fredrickson wrote a wonderful book on Love 2.0, and she writes about everyday moments of love. If I were to recommend a book to everyone listening, if you haven't read Love 2.0, uh, because that's that's about seeing the sacred and the everyday and operating from there. And the more we do that, the more powerfully we change the world. Oh my, that's one of my favorite books, Love 2.0. Yes. And uh, it reminds me for Sacred Changemakers, we're just redoing the website right now. And I had to find a, an image for the hero banner. And mm -hmm. I chose this beautiful image from Adobe Stock, which is the world all in hearts. That's how mm -hmm. it's made. Nice. And I was just like, oh, LQ. Okay. Nice. LQ. <laughs> I look forward to your TED talk on that. LQ, yes. Akim, yes. <laughs> thank you so much. I have loved every moment of this conversation. So thank you for sharing your insights and your wisdom with our listeners. I'm sure that they'll be taking away an awful lot from this. So thank you. Thank you, Jane. It was a pleasure. This episode of Sacred Changemakers was brought to you today by our sacred community for individuals who want to make the world a better place. You, dear listener, were born for these times. We can all be changemakers. The world needs you. But perhaps you don't know how to make a meaningful difference or what you can do to help. If life is feeling a little chaotic and you're looking for sanctuary, if you're interested in connecting with some lovely people, and if you have a sense that there is more to life, but you're not sure what it is, perhaps a deeper purpose or a sacred calling is waiting for you, then we invite you to explore this and so much more in community with us. Expand your awareness, clarify your purpose, and learn how you can make a meaningful impact in your life and the lives of others. The members are actually our sponsors who help us to produce this podcast for you. So if our episode resonated with you today, we hope you'll consider joining us. And for now, I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for your intentions and your efforts to make our world a better place. And until next time, lots of love. Bye.